Well, as I said earlier, over these past few weeks and through this fall kickoff season, as most of you know by now, I've begun to work through this current sermon series, taking up a part of the Bible in a time period in biblical history that we don't often open up all that much. We're taking a look most centrally at Ezra and Nehemiah, and we've heard a few bits and pieces as well from their earlier contemporary, the prophet Haggai, all of whom lived and worked and ministered during Israel's so-called restoration period, as I mentioned last week. That time, somewhat later on in the history of the covenant people, after their return from Babylonian captivity. In fact, the books that we've been reading lately are some of the very latest books in all of the Old Testament or Hebrew Bible. Most of the Old Testament, you may or may not know, either comes from or refers to the time before the Babylonian exile, back there in the Golden Age, when Israel had a kingdom, when kings like David and Solomon or even Ahab sat on the throne, the time when there was a temple to worship in and priests to serve it, the time of prophets like Elijah and Elisha or Amos or Hosea or Isaiah, most of what happens in the storyline of the Old Testament goes back at least that far, if not farther back in time. Back, for example, to Egypt, or to the Exodus, or the stories of Genesis. But where we are in this sermon series is long past all of that. What I'm having us do together is to zero in on a stretch of time well beyond and much, much different than all those parts that we may be more familiar with. When, for example, was the last time you heard anyone mention the Persian Empire? When was the last time you heard these strange names, even by the Bible's standards, like Xerxes or Artaxerxes or Cyrus, and I don't mean Billy Ray Cyrus or Miley Cyrus, but plain old Cyrus. What else is strange is that ancient Israel is no longer its own country like it used to be. Now it's part of a province within a satrapy, within an empire. It has a governor now rather than a king. And they're part of a government that reports up the chain to old King Cyrus. Stranger still though, the Jews coming back from exile are on really good terms with their emperor. This isn't Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or the Greeks or even Nero. For most of biblical history, there's often a very negative view of foreign powers, but for this stretch of time, there isn't. And in fact, as we've been reading over the last couple of weeks, it was the Persians that God used to send this people back to their homeland. It was the Persians who commissioned the rebuilding of their temple, who funded it and restored it from start to finish. This is a very unusual time, this restoration period. Things are finally looking up. It's time to build. It's time to dream. It's time to see what God might do now that Israel has waited successfully past the hardest chapter in its life. Do you remember what we read last week and the week before. The first week of this series, we read 
from the couple last verses there in the book of Second Chronicles where we heard of Cyrus's edict to let the people go free. To send them home to pay for the rebuilding of their temple. And last week we saw that that very same edict is restated at the beginning of the book of Ezra, though in slightly longer ver- version. And in both of those passages, it sounds like there's going to be an easy road ahead. There are no terms, no conditions on Cyrus's promise. The world is on our side. Finally. Last week we started to see, though, that that there was something in the heart of this people that is going to make this process longer than they thought it would be. And today, well, today comes the opposition, the obstruction, the complications, the red tape. Question, how many of you sitting here today, how many of you have ever had a dream deflated because of opposition? Because of obstruction. Because of red tape. How many have ever had a dream of your own or a goal or a promise that was made to you, as in the case of Cyrus and these returning exiles, that didn't turn out the way that it was supposed to? That was sidetracked, maybe. Frustrated. Outright challenged. Or obstructed that was supposed to be seamless and easy perhaps, but that turned out hard, complicated, conflictual. How many of you have ever been through something like that and had it damage your faith in God, in other people? Do something for me this morning as you're sitting there and write that down in the back of your bulletin in the notes section there, we're going to come back to it later. You can just write a code word if you want, something that will remind you of what that something is that you called to mind this morning. Maybe it caught your attention or your ear this morning already in the Scripture readings that we read, but the Jews of the Restoration now have an ugly problem on their hands that's preventing them from building their temple and their land again preventing them from doing the very thing that was supposed to be the most simple and straightforward of all. Preventing them from building the one thing that was already bought and paid for. The one thing that Cyrus the Great himself felt so strongly about doing. So they finally get to work today. As we heard a few moments ago. They finally get to work and they're approached by this group that Ezra calls the people of the land. And they say, let us build with you, please. Now, the people of the land here, you need to know, aren't just any old anybody. They're the exiled people. They're exiled people themselves who were resettled from that old northern kingdom so many centuries before. When the Assyrians destroyed Israel in the north, these are the people who were brought back to live in their place. And as you can see here today, the returning exiles have a hard time mixing and getting along with these people. In fact, they have a hard time getting along with their own people as well. Especially the ones who didn't go into exile but remained behind in the land. And so to 
their kind offer of help, the returnees say, no thanks. And that makes these people very, very upset. The returnees have just shown them what sort of neighbors they intend to be, right? They want to be left to themselves. They want to do their own thing. As I said at the beginning of this series, this story is not without its mistakes or its missteps. So what happens next? They start intimidating the Judeans. They bribe officials to obstruct their work on the temple. They write to the governors to challenge their right to build. They write to their emperor, King Darius, and say, these people you're helping have a history of rebellion. And wouldn't you know it, this new emperor Darius had lost his copy of what Cyrus had decreed. Red tape. Dreams deferred and obstructed. Conflict and hard feelings now in the middle of something that was supposed to have been seamless and easy. Sound familiar? And all of that notwithstanding the fact that yes, the Jews of the Restoration were crummy to their neighbors. Jesus will talk to this people later on about what it means to be better neighbors. In fact, Jesus will talk to them as well about the real challenge of being neighbors to foreign peoples. The Judeans of the Restoration are caught in the middle of a hard predicament. Because what we have to remember here is that this is a very small, very vulnerable, recently exiled minority population. They're trying to preserve a way of life that really is endangered. There really are very few of these people left and they feel at least that all of this really could go away very, very easily. And that mentality drives so much of their behavior at this time in history and now more opposition. You know, one of my great heroes of the faith is a saint by the name of Athanasius, who you've probably never heard of before. It's one of my many heroes of the faith. Athanasius lived in Egypt in roughly the 3rd or 4th centuries after Christ, which was a very contentious time and place to try to live a faithful life. And now none of my heroes of the faith were perfect people, and Athanasius is definitely included in that. He could be a bit contentious, and sharp-tongued, and at times... Not always gracious as he could be. But then again, I don't know what it would have been like to live his life. Always having to advocate vocally for what he knew was right as a minority voice, even within the church. Often having to make difficult choices and lead the church through challenging times and challenging politics. He spent long, long years of his life in prison because he led and walked with such courage. And I imagine a person who longed for rest and for resolution. He later became bishop and most of the hardest fights he fought were church fights. And I imagine he must have thought to himself many, many times, this is, is this the way things are supposed to be? The church isn't supposed to be filled with so much fighting. This is supposed to be a place of rest, of peace, kind of like those that home that the Israelites thought they were returning to. 
But as with those Israelites, the church wasn't yet what it needed to be or what it was supposed to be. And Athanasius knew that. And he had the courage to admit to himself that making the church a better reflection of what it was supposed to be was his work, even if it cost him jail time, even if it left him unsettled for most, if not all, of his life. What's so admirable about Athanasius to me is that he spent his entire life wading through what we might call red tape. And even though he must have truly longed to realize that promise of a day when the church really could be a home and a sanctuary for faith-filled travelers, he was nevertheless, nevertheless somehow willing to look for God in the rough times and places before that promise was realized. Imagine how disastrous it would be if he or the Israelites in this case had to wait until the job was finished before they could find their meeting place and sanctuary with God. If the Jews of the Restoration had to wait until their temple was built and finished. If Athanasius had to wait until the church was perfect. I think what they both stand to show us is where God is to be found amidst the obstructions where we should look for God in the midst of the complication and the adversity. Could it be the case that that God is just as much, if not more, to be found in the building of our temples as in their completion? That is, could it be that the mess where the world isn't cooperating in the building project, where we ourselves are guilty of our own sins and mistakes, could it be that that is the better place to be on the lookout for God's sustaining presence rather than in those not yet perfectly completed sanctuaries like a temple that are still awaiting their completion? I certainly hope so. I certainly hope so because newsflash, that perfectly completed temple never fully arrived. And that perfect church that Athanasius longed for never came. And if either of them did, even for a momentary glimpse of time, they didn't last all that long. The perfect temple, the perfect church, the perfect society the perfect world. They're always coming, never arriving until a much, much later point in time. And until then, until then, you and I are going to have to ask ourselves what it might be for us to find God's presence here amid the rubble, amid the not yet, in this imperfect place where we ourselves are a part of the imperfection. You know, church, God in Christ has come to show us that very thing. What it is to find Him in this place of deferred dreams. What it is to meet with Him where the temples are yet to be perfected. What it is to find Him on the road rather than waiting at the end of the journey. 
May Christ be your companion as we all wait together for those temples to be finished and all of God's people said. Amen. Let us pray. Loving and faithful God, we are very much still today a people in waiting. And God, oftentimes we find ourselves falling into that trap of deferring our our expectations, of, of holding out, oh God, for that day when all will be well and all will be perfect. We put our spirits on hold until we can land in that surer ground. Teach us, though, God. Teach us what it is to find you in the way, to find you amidst the obstructions, to lean on you and to grow with you when we come up against those rocks that are too high for us to climb. God, for it is there that you have called us to, to be present to you. It is there that you have called us to grow. It's there that you have called us to learn what it is to be your disciples. And so make us present to that part of the journey. And all of God's people said, Amen.